This is an ABC podcast. Natasha Mitchell with Big Ideas coming to you from Nam today. And hello, or Kalispera, or Kalimera, depending on what time of the day you're listening. Prominent Greek Australians on the show today, and they are provoking with a really pointed question at the recent Greek Australian Writers' Festival. Are we white yet? What does that question mean and why are they asking it? Here's author, comedian and actor Mary Kustis, famous for her character Effie. Essentially we're talking about belonging. You know, where do you belong? Where do you feel that you can be you? Whatever that you means. You know, you might try blend in and it is impossible. And why should any of us try to blend in wherever you come from? I'm not saying that you need to walk around, you know, holding the I'm different flag at every point. But you certainly want to feel like you can be who you are. And who we are is made up of many different things. And culture is a big part of that. It's not the whole equation, but it's a significant part because you're admitting to where you come from, what you come in with. And why should we change that? If you're Greek, you're part of one of the oldest and most established migrant communities in Australia and probably having a very different experience to that of your grandparents or great-grandparents who arrived here, were cast as outliers or aliens, they were discriminated against. And I think you'll be very interested in what the speakers say today on Big Ideas about becoming too mainstream or being perceived to be part of a white establishment. Mary joins moderator Helen Vatsikopoulos from the University of Technology, Sydney, with journalists Phil Kafkaloudis, Paul Farrell and Anna Patty, along with history professor Nicholas Demanis. I did mention this title to a very esteemed ABC elder journalist who said, you can't say that, that's racist, Helen. (laughs) And I said, calm down, you know, we're all talking amongst ourselves. When I say, are we white yet, I don't mean literally the colour white. What I mean is using the term as hyperbole, Okay, So, are we white yet is also, are we there yet, is also... Are we mainstream yet? Because we've been here for a long, long time. So let me start with you, Nick. The white Australia policy, let's start with whiteness. The white Australia policy, 1901 to 1945, with variations in between. But it wasn't about us, was it? Because we are not people of colour, if you don't count Olive as colour. Technically... You're right, but Australia, like other settler societies, Canada, South Africa, these are English-speaking settler societies. They, more than England, more than the mother country, defined themselves racially because they had indigenous peoples which they felt they needed to differentiate against. Greeks and Maltese and other Southern Europeans were on that margin A boatload of Maltese people were were turned back around the turn of the century because they were deemed to be non-white. And there were already Greek Australians, a lot of them actually, in Australia around that time. So they'd already been here, they'd already filled some niches, but they were also very heavily discriminated against and felt under siege. In 1915-16, there was a riot against Greek Castellaresian businesses in Kalgoorlie. 
Well, something happened at, at Anzac. It's actually related to the Anzac campaign. And the local uh, Greek community there was under siege because Greece was seen as on the wrong side of that war. And the business people there were trying to say, well, no, we're with Venezuelos. We're trying to get on the Allies side, but nobody was listening. And they ransacked the businesses. So Greeks in the early part of the century felt like they had to kind of really watch out and keep their heads down because they were deemed to be insufficiently white. A lot of these early Greek Australians were from Castores or Kithira, a lot of them with olive complexion, so easily picked out. So there, there were these things that people had to watch out for. Kalgoorlie's an interesting place, because in 1934, there was an incident there where a barman threw out a belligerent skip and threw him out, and he landed on his head and died. And that's when the Kalgoorlie riots happened. But it wasn't just about anti-Italian, because the barman was Italian. It wasn't just against Italians, it was against Greeks, it was against anyone that looked kind of like... Mm. Dark. <laughs> I was going to say like us. Um, I was doing some research on the anglicisation of Greek names, but I met a couple of people who had shops in Kalgoorlie at that time, and so they shortened their name to try to be mm. less Greek and so less susceptible, but it still didn't work. They knew that they were Greek, and so the shops were smashed, and, you know, it was pretty horrible. So Kalgoorlie was a fermenting centre, wasn't it, of racism in Australia? Who would have thought? Yeah, you know? thought. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Farrell, um, now you, you might ask, why, why is a Farrell on this, um, <laughs> on this panel hiding behind that Irish name? Paul, he's half Greek Alexandrian. Paul is an investigative journalist at the ABC and, and Paul, I know that the ABC archives are full of those amazing newsreels from, you know, the 50s with that booming, you know, almost English voice. And I saw one recently on the ABC and it talked about the beautiful bolts with their blue eyes and their blonde hair and towards the very end the reporter said and they are just the sort of migrants we want in this country. <laughs> Were we ever considered white? <laughs> Historically it's very clear that the white Australia policy although it might not to the letter of it have been intended to exclude Greeks it clearly did prohibit migration to quite an extreme degree of, of anyone from, from Southern Europe, and, and Greeks are obviously part of that. There's all kinds of comments that you can find littered through the 1920s and the, the 30s even, and even going much later than that, that clearly demonstrate this tendency towards, you know, anyone, even a Southern European migrant, was sort of in some way undesirable, and that's kind of, you know, really, I think, been, is a sentiment that was maintained for, you know, for, for a very long period of time. And even at prime ministerial level, because Stanley Bruce was quoted as saying, uh, now, we really need to keep down those numbers from southern Europe because they don't have the means and, uh, well, he didn't mention the, the colour, but you can find that on the record. Yeah, yeah. No, all, all these comments from, from him and um, I think Deacon was his attorney general at the time, sort of referencing, you know, saying of oh, the Maltese or the Greeks, you know, they're, they're in some way undesirable. We really don't sort of want those, you know, those types of, of immigrants here. So, and I've spent time looking at some of those materials and, and some of, you know, even going to the 50s and 60s when you look at it just for, out of curiosity from my own sort of family history. It's kind of fascinating just the, how stark the sense of alienation was and, and would have been for so many people who migrated at any point of time from Greece over that, you know, in that period of time. Phil Kath 
Kafkaludis. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your family and also tell us about your research, which is fascinating. Well, my family sort of slipped through with the White Australia policy and Deacon saying we don't want coolies in this country and coolies could refer to Asians, Pacific Islanders and also Greeks. And so our family, at one stage, the government was wanting people to go to Darwin. They wanted people from Greece to come to work at Vesti's Meatworks in Darwin and to work on the rail line, which was going from Darwin down Catherine. And so they said, yeah, Greeks are OK. We can let the Greeks in. We can let in the Manatis. You know, that would be OK. And so my family came and they became builders there. And they went under their name, which was Kafkaludis. My grandfather was Satiris Kafkaludis. And he was so proud of his name. And this is the thing about the pride of name. Does that mean that's what your identity is? And that's something I've, I've been writing about in my paper. But... 1930, he built his masterpiece, which is a big building in Kavanagh Street in Darwin, two storeys, very thick walls. He over-engineered everything. And so, and, but across the front, he wrote, 1930, Satyrus Kafkaludis, which is an extraordinary thing. How many Greek names do you see on buildings? You know, consider the number of builders there are all over the country, you rarely see a Greek name, but proudly he could do it. And the authorities referred to it as the Kafkaludis building. So he was quite proud. Then my family came to Sydney and my dad, who had gone under Kafkaludis all his life, for some reason changed his name to Kaf, K-A-F-F. And that's what I started my career in a journalist, as, as Phil Kaff. When I went to the ABC in 1988, I got the gig, and they said, great, it was just one thing, you have to go back to your family name, Kafkaludis. Today, you'd think, how enlightened, how fantastic that they want that. And I said, great, why, why, do, you, why do you want me to go back, expecting some sort of deep thing about you know, respecting minorities and all that. And the answer was, because we don't have enough wogs in the place. <laughs> so, but I was happy. I'd already gone back to using my name anyway in my private life, and so, and I've, I've kept with it. So the research I've been doing for the last year, I sent out um, surveys to people and asked them, did your forebears, or did you anglicise your family name? and why, and would you consider going back? You tell a very interesting anecdote about having relatives with anglicised names you didn't realise, that, or, or friends, and you didn't realise that they were not English, even though they had English-sounding names. Yes, that's right. That's fascinating. Tell Mr us about Vass, that. who probably still operates, he was a... Um, he was an industrialist in Marrickville and there was Vass Industries, V-A-S-S, and I went, that's an interesting name. My mum said, him, he's Greek, don't worry. You know, she, my mum was born here, she was Greek, but when she wanted to be snobby, him, he's just a Greek, you know. So Mr Vass and Mr Black, Mr North, you know, these are all people who translated their names or their parents or their grandparents on immigration, did all that for different reasons. Yeah, so I just didn't understand it. In fact, my best friend at school, Ross Musso, he kept his name. Anyway, Ross Musso, he thought I was Scottish because the name Caff sounds sort of a bit Scottish. And there was a picture of my brother on the television of him in Greek national dress and he thought it was a Scottish kilt. So <laughs> I, was the, I was the only Scottish Greek probably in Summerhill Primary School. Mary, you're from Melbourne. 
lots and lots of Greeks there. And, and a lot of them haven't been here as, I guess, as long as, you know, the Kazis or the Catherians. So there's different waves of migration. Do you think, because Melbourne is such a big, big Greek city, that the people there have sort of isolated their Greekness and taken pride in it? Or do they also, did they go through this thing of, oh, well, we've got to hide a bit of it? I guess safety in numbers is what exactly I'm asking. Exactly what I was going to say. I don't remember a time where we weren't proudly Greek in Melbourne. You know, I remember coming to Sydney to do Wogs Out of Work in the late 80s. And I walked into the Enmore Theatre and I thought, I've never seen a Greek father wear jeans. It was the first sign of difference in the Greeks. I thought, I've never seen a Greek father not in slacks, right? So there was that. And then there were other variations. The kids weren't speaking Greek as much as us. The accents were more broken. And then in Melbourne, I know one person that changed their name, only. And they came out in the 60s. I don't know why the name changed, but there was only one person I knew that changed their name. Being in my industry, you know, in the mid-80s when I came out as a qualified actress, supposedly looking for an agent to be able to do my work with who was going to help me find work, two things happened when I went to this agency. One was this woman I got told had a lot of the best actors in Melbourne at the time and I graduated with high distinctions, you know, I'd played dogs and animals and, you know, all sorts of different age groups and males at, at, at acting school. And when I went in to see this particular agent, she told me I was limited and yet she'd never seen me act. So I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I knew obviously what the word meant, but I didn't know what she was implying. And then she mentioned that, you know, the name thing, she touched on that, but she was more talking about well, I didn't realise until I was stopped at the lights and I saw my glossy 8 by 10 headshot looking back at me on the passenger seat and then I looked at myself in the rear vision mirror and I thought, oh, she's talking about this. She's like, there is no place for this. And that was, you know, we're talking about the 80s and if you looked at the television, this was not represented in any way that would make you want to represent it more. You know, it was always token and it was just fleeting and... And so I, I made a decision in that moment, which, which was a good decision. And I just thought, well, I won't get an agent and I will not listen to that sort of speak. I, I will just, I know that's there and I will not buy into that. So I, I made decisions to not listen to anything that didn't benefit me. Helen, in your introduction, you said something that really took my breath away for a split second. Are we there yet? Was the sentence you used. And I thought, well, where is there and do we want to get there? For me, you know, to get where, to be accepted how, at the price of what, you know, we know that essentially we're talking about belonging and that's, that's a universal theme for everyone. You know, where do you belong? Where do you feel that you can be you? Whatever that you means. We're talking about cultural belonging here more so than anything else. And... You know, the thing about being Greek is that you have such a deep history of belonging, of a culture that cannot be watered down. You might cut a few letters off or quite a few in a, in a surname, but that does not change anything but those letters coming off. You know, you might try blend in and it is impossible 
to blend in and, and why should any of us try to blend in wherever you come from? I'm not saying that you need to walk around, you know, holding the I'm different flag at every point, but you certainly want to feel like you can be who you are. And who we are is made up of many different things. And culture is a big part of that. It's not the whole equation, but it's a significant part because you're admitting to where you come from, what you come in with. And why should we change that? We should be open to what other people come in with. And we should be curious about that. And that's when we're at our best. But it's such an interesting subject that is triggering, and I don't want to overuse that word because it's sort of, it does, but you know, it breaks my heart for our parents who were beautifully naive in some ways. They came out with such a single-minded minded mission, and that was to get on their feet, to establish themselves, to ignore what didn't work for them, to be spoken to in ways that would be deemed completely unacceptable today, that was unacceptable then, that's always been unacceptable, and to play dumb in order to create a strong beginning for children they didn't even have. And to make that leaving of everything behind worth it. With the idea that perhaps they would go back, most of which didn't, and some of which did, and then returned back because they were caught in this gap, and this is the, the heartbreaking gap. The gap is, in the notion of what this subject is, where do you fit? And there are gaps in the fitting. They are getting, they're not white, they're not black, they're not accepted, and that is heartbreaking. And I talk about it in my stage show that I did last year and I'm touring this year, is you inherit that melancholy as the child of a migrant because they didn't complain, because they were so busy trying to get on with it. They never entertained the idea of complaining because they were too busy trying to achieve what they came out here to achieve. And somehow, against all odds, they held tightly onto their culture. And that we ingested that at every turn, that we were put around the dancers, the church, the, you know, the traditions. That was maintained in such a fantastic way and I was able to celebrate that in an industry that wasn't ready for it, didn't even think that there was something missing because I was lucky enough to find other people like me that were as passionate about performing as me that realised that the industry wasn't open to us and they weren't open to other people like us that were different flavours of us. So in some way we had to get entrepreneurial and start our own small business. And that small business became big business. You mentioned something about, you know, the migrants in Melbourne that didn't change their names and just got on with it. It seems to me, Phil, in your research, you're talking about migrants who came very, very early on and encountered racism, maybe during the time that the White Australia policy White existed. Australia policy. So why did they change their name? It was an interesting thing that in the, in the respondents that I got, very few of the Melbourne ones changed their name, but they were from all over the country, Brisbane, some Darwin and, and West Australia. There were three reasons that came out on why people anglicised their family names. One was convenience. It's just simply they didn't want to have to spell the damn thing out all the time. The second one was acceptance, which is on the, on the scale towards racism. They just did not want people to go, I'm not going to hire you, you're a Greek. 
you know. But the third one was in itself racism. They feared for their where they're going to be and what's going to happen to their kids. And there were some examples that I found of guys saying, you know, I was beaten up at school. They anglicised my name to Pappas. I mean, what the hell? Pappas? How is that an anglicised name? But anyway, apparently in, in primary school, kids are too dumb and they don't put two and two together. But in this particular primary school, they did and they found out that that wasn't his name. His name was really this long and they beat him up for it, you know. But that's school kids and school kids, you know, do stupid things. But it was a protection by his parents to try and stop that. Talking about changing names, Anna, Anna Patty. Tell us about your family and the name, the evolution of the name. So Dad migrated to Australia when he was about 11 years old and it was in the 30s. I have to preface this by saying uh, he was in his late 50s when he had me. But anyway, Dad arrived at the age of 11 with no English on a boat with a guardian and the immigration officials basically advised him to shorten Varipati or Varipatis to Patti. What's an 11-year-old going to say? So he changed it at 11? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So Dad became, you know, went from Yanis Varipatis to Jack Patti. (laughs) (laughs) And over the years, Dad was one of 11, so I have thousands of cousins, maybe 30. So <laughs> quite a few of them have changed it back to Barry Pattis. And I, I did consider this, I think, probably in my mid-20s when I was at the Sun-Herald. I've been a journalist since my early 20s. And I thought about this. I did my first trip to Greece in my oh, at about 24 years old. And I, I fell in love with Greece. And I guess I rediscovered a pride in Greece after, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I was the wog, I was the only Greek girl in my year at school and, you know, I didn't like speaking Greek at home, I only spoke it to my grandmother because she couldn't speak English. You know, you go through these phases, so by mid-20s I'm loving my Greek heritage and I thought I'm going to change it back to Vary Pattis and I spoke to Dad about it and I just detected this sadness in Dad. The more I thought about it, I thought, look, as a journalist, I've always been Anna Patty. I have to say also I'm not a fan of identity politics, so I don't think my Greekness I wear on a badge. It's not about my name, it's about who I am, and I've internalised my Greekness through my parents. Dad's a gorgeous, gorgeous... Well, he was, sorry, he's not here anymore, but growing up, Dad would always point to this... We had a big photo of Kithira... Kapsali, which is where he's from, the village in Kithira, on our lounge room wall. And I grew up with this image of Kithira. And he'd get one of, pluck one of mum's gladiolas and point to <laughs> the whitewash house in the second bay of Kapsali and say, you know, this was our house, this is where I grew up, this is where I used to go swimming. And, you know, I grew up with this image, you know, from the time I was a little kid. And so I knew Greece through... Mum and Dad, through all the Greek dances in the Blue Mountains, we had a tight Greek community in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains. At the time, there were nine Greek cafes or fish and chip shops up and down Katoomba Street. There was the Carrington Hotel run by Theo Morris. There was the Paragon Cafe. There was my parents' cafe, Aronis, which was named after a, a good friend of mine. Her family were Aronis. My parents bought it off her grandfather. I grew up with very tight 
Greek community ties in Katoomba. We, we would come to Sydney to go to Greek Orthodox Church. We'd go to the Catherian Balls. So the whole Greek cultural thing was a big part of our lives. But did I need to be Anna Vary Pattis? No. And I still don't, despite the fact that maybe it might help me get a job. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> now, going through life as a, a, a feral, does, is that different from had you been going through life with your Greek name? And tell us a little bit about your family background and the Greek name. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, interestingly, my grandparents did also shorten their Greek name, but hilariously, it went from Zingrelaris to Zingros, um, which still kind of sounds like inarguably Greek, uh, and also meant that, unfortunately, for my um, you know, my mum was, was six at the time when they emigrated here, and my, my two aunts were, I think, eight and 12, so they're all in school. And I mean, unfortunately, they had surnames with the word gross in them then as well, which was a source of endless teasing to them. <laughs> so I think that was a, a bit of a misstep. But, um, but my grandparents, uh, so after the Second World War, my grandparents moved from Greece to Egypt, where there was a kind of a small but growing Greek, Greek community there. And then Unfortunately, in the you know during the the 60s, um, General Nasser at the at the time was introducing these very kind of prohibitive policies around a lot of the um, the expatriate communities like the Greeks and the Italians and the, the Jewish communities that were there, and my grandparents, like I think a lot of other of those members of that community at the time, thought that it was not really the a place where they felt very welcome either. So. They decided to, in the in the sixties, emigrate to to Australia. So they came on one of uh, the um, you know the great cruise ships, the the, the Australis, in in nineteen sixty five, and made that great journey over. And you know, they, I guess they were fortunate in some respects because arriving in Australia at that time it meant that you know there was there were these programs for them to to, to come to Australia. You know that we've still got the you know the migration, the, the loan that the Commonwealth loan forms that they got that they were paying off. You know two pounds every six, you know, every six months or whatever to pay for their way over to Australia. So I think they were certainly lucky to, to come at that time. But, but at, at the same time, they still really did everything they could to sort of assimilate into Australia. And, and really, I think my grandparents particularly really shied away from their, you know, parts of their, of their Greek identity. And, you know, so my mum was very young uh, at, at the time, but, um, you know, like my... My, my aunts have, you know, all these stories about, you know, getting in huge fights with my grandfather because, um, you know, they were spending too much time in the sun and getting, you know, too tanned. And my grandfather was worried that they, they wouldn't look white, effectively, that they just, they were, they were just, they would look clearly like wogs. Um, and, you know, just even then, in the, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s. So that was sort of their, their journey here. And I think they, you know, encountered many of the same sorts of, of experiences and challenges that lots of Greeks did. But then, for me, I mean, it's, it's quite strange. Really. I mean, Greece is really the biggest and most important part of my identity because my, the name Farrell is... My, my dad was adopted anyway, so, so the name Farrell is kind of like a... It means very little to me in, in terms of anything like that. And, and I often do wonder if, you know, if my, if my surname had been Paul Zingrelaris or, um, or, you know, if I'd had my... Um, middle name is Francis after my grandparent on my dad's side, but I wonder if it had been Paul, you know, Paul Iracles Zingrelaris, whether my life would have been sort of different, and I, and I, I kind of still think it probably would have been. Um, how, how do you think it would have been I, different? 
Well, I, I just think that... Obvious. I, I think, yeah, it would have been an obvious sort of, you know, you, you would see someone, especially I'm a journalist now, you'd see someone's name, you know, still that looks kind of different. And, and I think, sadly, there's still, you know, there are still Australians out there who sort of see a name like that and it kind of grates on them or it, it makes them seem different in, in some way. It's a very interesting observation, that, because uh, I'm going to give you an anecdote. I was voting at a federal election two elections ago, I think, and uh, it was at a school. I was with my husband and my daughter, and I noticed the state member who had just been elected. And I approached this person and said, congratulations, I voted for you, that's terrific. And she looked at me and said, so, and uh, what's your name? And I said, I'm Helen Vatsikopoulos. And then she started to giggle and went, oh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that. Oh. Yes, yes, uh, I'm not going to out the person, but, but, but that to me was, look, I, I, talk about triggering, uh, that took me back to, I don't know, the age of 15. Now, Mary, you'd kill for laughs like that, wouldn't you? But this was actually... <laughs> but this your name, Mary, you know. But, <laughs> but this was actually someone who is an elected member of parliament. OK, mm. I live in the eastern suburbs and uh, we don't have that many... It's not that diverse. But what does that say? Don't be diplomatic. Yeah, no, on. well, <laughs> look, when someone's representing, you know, a, a whole, then, then you need to step up to that. Look... Human beings, unfortunately, will always be human. That's the good news, that's the bad. Uh, the, the bad news... Um, I, I mean, I, of course I empathise with you, but, you know, like, I, I hear somebody say that and I think, is that the best you can do? You know, and I can't help but, but think she probably thought she was being cute, but she didn't realise that, that uh, it wasn't that cute. If she's giggling, then she's just trying to win... You know, I mean, it's just clumsy and wrong and, and sort of unacceptable for someone in, in a political office where they're supposed to be representing the whole. You know. and, and in this era of diversity and inclusion policy, it's very, very interesting because uh, uh, everyone's got anti-racism campaigns. And I know at, the, at UTS there's, there is a group uh, and they are having meetings and they're calling it Call Me By My Name, OK? So we're talking about... It's not about the Greeks and that's whether you can pronounce Vatsikopoulos or you think it's funny. I think it's for the other migrants who've come after us, right? So, uh, for example, last year I met a very interesting high-profile woman from Google and her name was Shilpa Jungjungwala. And when she mentioned that name, I thought, wow, I love that name. And she didn't change it to Shilpa J or anything like that. So it's, it's a sign of maturity, isn't it, that we can actually say, this is my name and, you know, you need to pronounce it. But that sort of begs the question, and again, when I say, are we white yet, I really mean, are we just mainstream? Are we normalised mainstream, that we're not funny or... Uh, that to me says we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, could I make the point that the word, the name Pappas and Pulos is a purely diaspora invention. Many Australians would not, may not know this, but it's not a, it's not a common name. In, uh, neither name is common in Greece. And, uh, in fact, Pulos is actually a naughty word. But it's purely invented for those purposes that you, you should be a Pulos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a Poulos, actually. And also, you, we came in to Australia in 1965, so I think mm. the, uh, the later you've come, the more 
confident you are and perhaps the earlier you've come, the more you think that you've got to do something to fit in. The, the pressure was still on for the post-war wave. As you possibly know, do you, do you want me to talk about the post-war wave? Because it, it is the, in the post-war years when the Greek community, the most of it, came. There was a pre-war community that set up everything and made it e actually slightly easier for the newcomers to settle once they assimilate. But then the post-war wave came in large numbers uh, from about the mid-50s onwards. And that's where most of them went to Melbourne because Melbourne has the, is the industrial manufacturing base of Australia. So I think a good half of Greek Australians are in Melbourne and a third are in Sydney and the rest are spread everywhere else. And the thing is, the pressure was still on because whilst Australia wanted immigration, they didn't want migrants. So you know the story, they start with British, they wanted Britishers to come here. Okay, so people like David Hill um, to come here and then they ran out of British people. So they looked to Northern Europe because, you know, they're still racially minded. So they go for the people from the Baltic states. You've heard the term, the beautiful Balts. Uh, people who look like us. Germans. They just had, they just had a war with the Germans, and so, but they were welcome. And then when they ran out of Northern Europeans, Dutch as well, huge Dutch numbers came to Australia. They held their noses and said, OK, now Southern Europeans. <laughs> and, and we came in huge numbers from the mid-50s onwards. And the thing is about... The, what's distinctive about the Greeks, I think, is they, more than the others, want to remain Greek. I can prove that by, their by the proliferation of associations. They're huge on associating. They like forming associations and fighting over them. <laughs> and writing back home to tell, to tell family, I'm the president of this, this thing and I'm the president of that thing. But that, that desire to form associations is, is part of that desire to remain Greek. Nick, my, my mother, um, who you know, is such a funny person, who's never pronounced anything correctly, for the record, <laughs> Your Honour, gets so outraged when someone mispronounces our name. And I'm like, um, yeah, why don't we just go through you know, the transcripts of your life and see whether you ever got a word right that was in English. <laughs> she uh, picked me up from the airport a million years ago uh, in Melbourne, and uh, she says, oh, I have great news. I said, what's your news? She says, I'm going to be the president of the Female Association for Aristoteles, Florina. And I said to her, have you thought this through? You know, this is not going to end well, it never does. I said, you'll have fallings out, this is how, this is how it happens, you know. Anyway, she did it. And she was so proud of it, she was in the kitchen one minute, with an apron on, you know, working for six hours to put on a lunch and then up with the microphone, you know, introducing people and then back in the kitchen to do the, the dishes. And it was a very empowering thing for my mum mm. to be seen to represent what she left behind mm. and the money that they raised and the building and, you know, we share common people that we love because we're from the same part of Greece, Florina, northwest of Thessaloniki. There are people that are literally working every single day. Kathy was one of the Catherians here that I know and love who just left. Uh, they work for nothing to give back to the place that gave so much to them, you know. And, um, and it's a big thing. And there are clubs everywhere in Melbourne and, and even here, having lived here for so many decades for me. There are so many people looking to preserve you know, the thing that they love so much and trying to introduce their children to that idea as having some bit of cultural insurance that they can go back to and sit into 
that, that is a place of sameness, mm. you know, in a country that's so full of differences. Yeah. The, the longevity and, and the durability of the Greek culture is really, really interesting. And I think, you know, there are some ladies here from the Ladies Lyceum and they work really, really hard and they have dancers and they collect costumes and they don't have to do it, but they do. And that is about uh, passing the culture on and making sure that it doesn't end with marrying out. Now, I'm, I'm a Greek from Adelaide, okay, so it's completely different uh, history there. But I remember going back and uh, going to a function and seeing uh, families married out, Italian mother-in-law, and saying, uh, so how's the Italian club going? And she went, the Italian club? That closed years ago. We sold it to the Indians. <laughs> Which is very, very interesting because that doesn't happen. You know, th there is something about the Greek culture where it continues and continues. So th there must be something to about falling, I mean, maybe we fall out of love with the Greek culture when we're teenagers and we can't do things and we're not allowed to do things and we are different and we're the other, but something happens maybe a little bit later in life where we fall in love with being Greek again, my Irish friend over here, uh, who had, who's taught himself Greek, by the way. Uh, when Paul and I talk on the phone, we talk in Greek. I'm not going to ask you a Greek question. Oh, but, but you've actually embraced it full on, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so I, I never learned Greek as a, as a kid growing up. And, and I think, like we were talking about in that post-war migration stream, it was really on, the focus I think was really on so heavily on my grandparents to just assimilate and, and to sort of try to shed their, their otherness as, as much as possible. So they, um, my grandmother and my, and my mum and my aunts talked, talked Greek when I was growing up. My, my mum never really you know, pushed for me. She, she was open to it, but she never pushed me to go to Greek school or to learn Greek, you know, because she was you know, worried it would sort of confuse me and, and things like that. And, and I think there was a lot of people who thought in that sort of way, in that, in that post-war migration stream. And obviously we know now that's just totally wrong. The, the idea that you would confuse a child by making them bilingual is just total nonsense. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's good that that's now recognised much more, much more widely. Yeah, so, so I mean, over the years, I've, I've like often tried to be like, oh, I, I, like I really want to learn Greek. I want to sort of uncover that because, the, you know, just the sounds of hearing, it was so sad when I'd go to Greece and just not really hear the familiarity of the sounds that I'd heard growing up, but not really being able to connect with them. And then I don't know one of those people who was like, oh, I learned a language during COVID. But I learned a language during COVID. But anyway, I took the opportunity of the, you know, the time that I had in COVID and I, I signed up for this great online service called italki where you can book, you know, language classes over Skype with people and um, found a, a tutor who I liked and in, in Athens. And so we've now been doing you know, lessons for, for three years. So, you know, used to, and obviously early on in COVID, it was a lot more because I had a lot more spare time and we'd just do one, one class a week now. Sorry, but, um, sorry. So you learned Greek in three years? Well, I mean, I learned a basic Greek yeah, basic in, Greek. in three years. Great. It's I've been learning Greek for like 15. And I don't know the difference between Malistar and Vavaios, right? No. I don't... I wouldn't have a and I still don't know what it is. But anyway, but no, when I was a kid, my mum wanted me to go to Greek school. She wanted me to be the good little Greek boy, right? But I wanted to go home, sit in front of the TV and watch those really crappy Beatles cartoons they used to have on TV. And so, you know, Ringle and all that, you know? And so I would do that and mum would go, you going to Greek school? No. Nah. Why not? Don't want to. You know, it was just, I was such a Greek kid in that sort of way, so I never did. And I didn't learn, start learning Greek until 15 years ago. And, and so until I started doing that. But 
it was, I think, the 60s was a different time, especially in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney, so you didn't have to. You didn't have to do that. Three times yeah. a week, my, my parents paid a fortune for, for my brother and I to go to a private Greek school. Of course, there was, you know, corporal punishment involved. Um, he would pick us up in his Volkswagen combi, and the conversation three times a week as we waited for him to pick up the students from, you know, I was living in Collingwood at the time and the school was in Fitzroy. We'd say, do you reckon he's dead? Do you reckon he's had a car crash? <laughs> for six years, uh, we went three Jeez. times a week. And the amount of homework was insane. And every year I'd get 10 out of 10 and every year my mum would take a very cheap and nasty, what she called champagne, Asti Spumanti, <laughs> bottle to him and say, keep hitting her, it's working. <laughs> but, and as much as I hated it every single time, I was able to not go and do Greek again until year 11 and, and do really well. I, did, I missed all those other high school years. You know, <laughs> and it's such a big part of how I look at the world because it's one thing to be Greek and, and there are layers of Greekness, but to be able to express yourself in a language that is so specific, that is so evocative of image and, and feeling that is like, you know, so precise in its beauty and its poetry, uh, for anything from comically to, you know, um, from a literature point of view, it informs so much of what I do because I think I think in Greek and I speak in English. And when I'm in, in Greece, because Greeks love taking the piss out of anyone that doesn't speak Greek properly, uh, in order to get away with that, because my Greek's very good, but it's not, a, it's not elite Greek, but it's, it's one level above what I suppose most Greek Australians can speak because I go there a lot and I speak it a lot. Uh, is that I, I force them to, to adapt to how I speak it, which is I think in English and I speak in Greek. That's when I'm in Greece. Because you want to own, you know, the confidence of when you're trying to speak in another language. And if you try to speak it exactly the way they do, you'll fail because we don't speak it enough. But if you, uh, if you take what we get given by being Greek Australians and use it to your advantage, I think it works. Even with a hose. Even with a hose. <laughs> That's great. I, I just want to um, talk a little bit about you know, identity politics. Anna, you say you're not really keen on identity politics but, and positive discrimination, but, but every workplace now has that happening. And, and in, even in the ABC, you know, Paul, there are diversity and inclusion policies and when they are hiring people, they are looking for certain people, whether it's LGBT, TQI or whether it's uh, a woman or whether it's a person of colour, they're, they're there, they're there. And there was a time, I think, that when it did benefit us, maybe, maybe you feel when they said, if you change your name to Kafkaludas, you've got a job at the ABC because we don't have enough wogs. When I joined in 82, I think I was a non-English speaking background hire and the only other Greek I knew there was Tony Magnatti uh, who uh, of course came before me and you know led the way but you know so there were all these acronyms that you hear about you know NESB non-English speaking background and then we started talking about called and that's cultural and linguistically diverse but now when I read about policies I don't see that sort of uh, non-Anglo background anymore. It seems to have disappeared. It is now non-European background in terms of hires and people of colour. So 
Is that a good thing? Because it assumes that, you know, Vatsikopoulos, no one will laugh at that name. And, uh, and oh, we've already got a Carvelis and we've already got a few people. We've got enough Greeks now, so you're not going to be part of any of that positive discrimination or hires. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Anna, what do you think? Just in my own experience, when I was in my early 20s, I think I did an internship at the ABC um, and... I remember the uh, a guy who was hiring the cadets getting all excited when he found out I was Greek and he said, oh, we've got these, you know, NESB cadetships. And I, I, it kind of jarred with me then and it still does jar with me. I, I understand, yeah, I mean, particularly with the ABC, um, they, they are looking for people with diverse backgrounds, but I wouldn't like the idea of being hired on that basis. I prefer to be hired on my own merit as a journalist and... But even if that's a correction, a correction, we don't have any of the, any Greeks, so we want to hire some. I, I still don't like the whole idea of... I just think we've got bigger issues to worry about, like inequality, class to me is a bigger issue than diversity and giving kids like me the same opportunity I had to get a decent education, to me, is a bigger issue. I mean, there's so much inequity in the, the school system in terms of the way we fund it. I had a great education. <laughs> Growing up in Katoomba, I went to a comprehensive high school and I had a great education. I, I mixed with a whole range of kids there and you don't get that now. And it's all just a class system. So that, to me, is a bigger worry. Why aren't we addressing that? Paul, what do you think? I mean, you're at the ABC. It's really, really very much engaged with diversity and inclusion. Is that something that needs to be done for the migrants that came after us? Look, I think I probably disagree with Anna to some degree on this because I think those policies are just incredibly important. And, you know, I've, I've worked at... I've been fortunate enough to work at newsrooms like the ABC and places like The Guardian where there's been a, a huge emphasis on on these kind of programs with the idea that, you know, they actively go out of their way to hire people who are different. And the reason is, is because all of the research, you know, in, in so many different settings shows that people are more likely to hire people who sound like them and look like them. And fundamentally, that is the problem that is always attempting to be corrected. And that, that is why there are so many problems with kind of structural racism in, in so many Australian institutions and so many institutions around the world. And I think those policies should be absolutely commended. And, and a, Well, I and think a, we've got bigger problems than that to worry about, is my point. I mean, I, I think there are certainly other problems to worry about, but I think that if you've just come from Afghanistan or a, or a war zone and you're trying to get on your feet in Australia, I mean, you know, it, it would be so tough to make your way in that sort of setting. And I, and I think that those are the kind of people that those policies should be there to serve. And, and they, you know, they should get access to a good quality education. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It reminds me, I was talking to George Megalogenis, who's a, a very well-known, respected Australian, Greek-Australian journalist, and I asked him, are we white yet? And he said... Hmm, interesting question. I was talking to Magda Szymanski about this, and Magda said, yeah, yeah, we are. And when did we become white? And she said to him, when the Vietnamese arrived. 
So it's a very interesting, it's like, yeah, you have a whole queue and, and then you have other migrants who come after you. And one of the things he said is you've got the first generation, they work hard, 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 you know, straight A's, straight A's, okay, don't you dare get anything less than that. And then we, we well, I was born in Greece, but the second generation is a really hard working generation and they then, and this is about class, and then they move up from the working class to the middle class and then they send their kids to private schools. <laughs> and maybe when we talk about have we made it, are we white yet, what we're really talking about is class. Well, yeah, we're not downtrodden anymore. I mean, we had something to complain about in the 70s. George Megalogenes is talking about how each wave of migrants gets discriminated against, including by migrants of the previous generation. Exactly. Right? They become normalised and then the next group gets hit. That is a process that carries on. This is the migrant dream. That's what makes us all the same, is that they all come to Australia to make it work, and, and Australia actually provides that, those opportunities. And they all appreciate it. They all want to become part of the place. So it's a matter of integration. Australia's great with integrating newcomers. Whether that continues into the future, I don't know, but it has worked. But I do remember in the 70s how difficult it was. I was still wog, wog, wog every day. And then for some reason in the 80s, that went. I don't know why. Actually, I do know why. The economy picked up. There were more jobs. There's something about the context, the economy which picked up, which kind of could take care of more, more and more people, and that continued on into the 90s. I wonder, too, if it's also the amazing work that people like Mary have done. You mentioned the 80s, so the late 80s, I remember the Tiboldi brothers, and then mm. I remember Wogs Out of Work, and then I remember Acropolis Now. And... That was, I think, people will be writing books and papers about this. Academics will be studying this. The amazing contribution that you and the comedians made in removing that word wog from being a racist slur to being, hey, I'm a wog, what's your problem? Talk us through that period. Well, that word inherits the diversity of how you might use that word, like, like with any word. It was used extremely negatively for a long time and we tried to claim it back and use it in an affectionate way, in some ways to detoxify the word. And yet, that's a still a very powerful word mm. and it can still cut you to the bone, especially when it's, you know, when it's aimed at you in a way that you don't expect. Yeah, look, I think for us, it was we knew that there was no place in the industry for people that looked like us and we knew that a word limited was a, you know, a little front for a word that meant something else. Every time if you were to, to strip it back, it essentially said limited, ethnic, take it back again, wog, you know, you know, the boys took that word and put it in the title because they knew we were saying what wasn't being said in a way that, that was hidden behind, you know, a more politically correct term. But in the reality of playgrounds and bars and all those things, that word was still being used way too much. But we have another flavour of what that can mean and that's all we can do. We can only just go, OK, well, let's water it down with some other options of what that can be. We can't take away that bullet from people that know how to use it and how, you know, how to wound someone instantly. And like I said, that's what language is for. That's what 
saying it first is for, and claiming it is like, I know that this is a weapon that's out there. We're going to use it in a way that is affectionate and in a way that allows us to be seen and heard. And it worked a treat. It worked immediately. We were out selling. That show was on at the Enmore Theatre for six, eight, nine months, eight shows a week, 1,500 people a show. It was outselling every music act that was coming in, touring overseas. It was its own thing. We were not known. The show was known. The power of the show was known. People came back and saw that show seven, eight, nine, ten times with a new group of people every time. Whole families were seeing that show because they were represented. When the boys did the two mothers on the factory assembly line, the parents could see themselves in that. And that was important that you tell that story from all generations because it was our parents that copped that too and it wasn't mm. just us. But has it just moved then from the Greeks to the next ones? Like there was a terrible musical called History of Australia where the redcoat British treated the miners terribly, who treated the Chinese miners terribly, who treated the Aboriginal people in the area terribly. So there was this cascade. So it's not the Greeks anymore moving on to what you said, the Vietnamese, but then moving on to the Indian, maybe Chinese, you know? Is it just still there and we're just sort of shifting it along that in our society we've got an issue? I think that we are a lot more aware of it. We have all these policies and we have people out there almost policing it. So in a sense, I think the Greeks and maybe the Jewish people and maybe the Yugoslavs and people like that did it tough. And along the way, the people who came after us are sort of being looked after a lot better, better, I think. Thank you very much, everybody. How can we learn from the past about the experiences of being marginalised? Moderator Helen Vatsikopoulos there with that robust discussion on identity and belonging and Greekness with Phil Kafkaloudis, Nicholas Dumanis, Paul Farrell, Mary Kustis and Anna Patty. Check out more Big Ideas talks from Australia and around the world and follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app. The full archive you'll find on the Big Ideas website. And I'm Natasha Mitchell. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.